What's up, everyone? Metal Dave here, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, bringing you another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Our guest today, Jarvis Leatherby from Night Demon. He's also in Sirith Ungle. He manages a bunch of bands. He has a record label. He knows his heavy metal inside and out. I mean, we just had a real bro down geek fest and I, I loved every minute of it. Uh, the guy is obviously very passionate about heavy metal in general and specifically about what he's involved in. And uh, I, I learned a lot and it was re really, really insightful and just a really cool dude. I was so happy we got him on the show. I think that uh, he's the epitome of uh, heavy metal will never die. He, he's tattooed that on his uh head where some people might have been born with 666 so he uh he's he's the real fucking deal totally. and i saw night demon going on like 15 years ago or more at uh red seven outside opening for raven wow and it wow. was a while ago it was yeah. a while ago uh raven had a different drummer um, they had the pentagram guy, I'm, his name's escaping me. I fully apologize and deserve a beating for that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Jarvis is, is a one of a kind and he knows everyone. Um, but the thing is, is he's not telling you that he knows everyone. He's not name dropping to, uh, with any agenda. He yeah. is the real deal and, uh, just loves what he does and I think that you'll enjoy the line of uh, interrogation we gave him today because he just ran with it and, you know, was was uh, swirling sparklers the whole time he was under interrogation. <laughs> so uh, without he's what further, I call he's what I call the perfect guest. Exactly. I, mean, I was he's he's a good talker. He's got great stories to tell. He's passionate about it on every level. And uh yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of guys that and and girls that we love to have on this show. Uh, they make our 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 job very easy. We just kind of say go, and he runs. <laughs> yeah, and the interesting thing is, is probably a third of our guests they they're friends with Jarvis, so oh, yeah. that that means something too. Yeah, so very well uh, connected and for good reason. Yeah, take us out, Dave. Yeah, Jarvis Leatherby today on the Talk Louder podcast. <laughs> Jarvis, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful uh, Sunday morning, and I'm um, happy to be alive. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. It's good to be here. You know, it's good to be yeah. on on the right now with yeah. everything, with all the complaints. It's still good to be alive, right? <laughs> yeah, you got that right. That's better than uh, the alternative. And to yeah. be able to do the the things that make us happy and the things that literally can give us reasons for living reason to get out of bed. Uh, and, and today I want to like target you as being that's heavy metal, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's, that's what a, I thought. Yeah. It's that, you know, I always thought of heavy metal as uh, a lifestyle and slowly, you know, from as in my youth, you kind of just by immersion, um, embrace that lifestyle and become it without trying you know what i mean you, I you, do. You, by 
you know, I mean, I started out, you know, playing, you know, you start by listening to it, then you start by playing it, then you, you get involved in the scene, whether you're, you know, promoting shows or just going as a spectator, starting a band, going to, you know, hanging out with like-minded people. And, and, you know, here I am, uh, you know, 25, 30 years later. And I guess it's, it's the, um, it's a good life. It's a good job, you know? Yeah. Speaking yeah. of, of that, how did you initially get hooked on rock and roll? Well, my dad was in a band with Michael Anthony from Van Halen. They were in their first band together. Wow. Out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so this was like, I think probably like 69 to 72. Pasadena area? Arcadia. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. Right. In the neighboring city. Okay. And, um, you know, they were doing like Battle of the Band stuff, high school dances. And, you know, I think that when they started out, they were kind of doing, um, you know, more kind of 60s rock, not psych stuff, but probably like the Kinks or, uh, you, you know, stuff like that. And then they started going to concerts when they were, you know, at this time, I think they were like in junior high or something. And then they they started going to concerts when they got into high school. And, you know, they were going to see like Led Zeppelin and Sabbath and Grand Funk and, and everything kind of changed from there. Um, and then, you know, I think, uh, you know, my dad was just having fun doing it. And I, then Mike just re he really took it to the next level and, and got really serious about music. Um, but he had a good background, you know, his, 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 his dad was like a jazz trumpet player. And like, there is, you know, my dad's family was supportive too, but I mean, there was a lot of musicality in Mike's family and, and, uh, you know, he just had that hunger for it. And, um, but yeah, it's like, you know, so my, so that, that, so like the Van Halen thing was always around in, in my household, you know, and deep purple and stuff like this. And you kind of get, um, this, you know, whatever your parents listen to when you're young, you kind of, it kind of always sticks with you, like no matter what it is. And I've talked oh, yeah. to many, I've talked to many people and, and it's, it's kind of always that way, you know? Um, but luckily there was that there was always rock, like hard rock. And when I was young, I didn't gravitate towards it immediately because you know what your parents like is not cool. Yeah. Um, and I like when I was, when I was, when I was pretty young, but old enough to, you know, I, I mean, I would say like maybe eight years old to, you know, go buy my first tape or whatever, you know, at the, that was right when like the gangster rap thing was, was, I mean, like NWA had just come out and I was a suburban white kid and somebody showed me this tape at like my private school and i was blown away because i was like these guys are talking about sex they're talking about violence there's cussing which you know back before the internet it wasn't if you know you're a kid you heard a cuss word it's like you're usually like in 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 any kind of media at least you know that's when you stay up late after your parents go to bed and you watch skinamax or something you know so yeah like i i was just blown away by that and i was really gravitated towards it um but um, I remember two live crew, they put out this album as nasty as they want to be, and it got banned. So you had to be 18 to buy the album. And I was eight. <laughs> so um, but there was, you know, the Columbia House thing was happening at the time. Yeah. So I, I was eight years old, but I had a penny. <laughs> and I, you know what I'm saying? So, so I went and got like, uh, you know, I got 12 tapes for a penny and I just, I just filled out the form and they came in the mail. And 
what happened is they had a song they had a song on that album called the fuck shop and it started with the they sampled the sweet child oh mine um the slash the opening lick and it went right into the opening lick of ain't talking about love and i said well first of all just the sound of those two riffs just the guitar tones went to virgin ears like we're just it's you know you get this weird tingling inside it's like how is that how is somebody making that sound and immediately i was like all right well fuck this i'm 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 sending another penny and i'm getting like all the sabbath tapes you know so it was so gangster rap got me into rock wow yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah, that's that's excellent. So straight out of Compton is a reason you're a headbanger. Yeah, I mean they were, you know, and then I heard like Run DMC's Rock Box, and uh, you know, uh, Beastie Boys' Fight for Your Right you, you, to Party, you know, and it, it's like uh, that just had those elements, and it was like they were simple guitar riffs that. You know, I'm like, well, you know, I could play that. <laughs> you know, well, like pe- people still don't realize that's Carrie. Yeah, right. He did the solo on that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Rick, I got a lot. I have a lot of admiration for Rick Rubin. Then, you know, yeah, he kind of like uh, created his version of crossover. Dude, he's a yeah. He's absolutely for a non musician and non engineer i mean he's definitely uh ahead of his time in in many ways you know over the so if you were eight years old when uh two live crew or or nwa came out what uh what was your first concert so my dad took me to monsters of rock 88 because van halen was headlining yeah and i saw scorpions and metallica and dokken and i was like i'm sold yep you know saw that in texas Specifically Metallica. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, like this, I know exactly what I want to do with my life. And then a few years later, wow, I guess maybe five years later, because, well, like kids were coming to school when the Black Album came out and they would just be like, there's this tape and it's just Black and it's called Metallica and it's incredible. And I was like, there's this other one called and justice for all and you need to hear this you know and people are like what the hell you know (laughs) um but another thing happened when i was so i'd gone to a christian school my parents weren't religious but they i was getting into a lot of fights at public school when i was pretty young like actually around that age probably glorifying the gangster rap thing right like here i'm some white kid and i'm gonna fucking you know right i'm gonna Dang, right? Yeah, whatever. So they put me in private school. The best thing that ever happened to me, man, because I grew up for seven years with the same 20, 30 kids. And I still have these friendships till today. Like being in a being in a smaller environment like that really kind of helped me, you know, um, generate great relationships with people. Right. You found, and your, so you found your gang. I did. And we had something to rebel against because we were constantly, you know, I was getting I was failing religion class because they would like make us copy, actually copy the Bible word for word, like, in you know, and so it was, it, it became a thing that wasn't a choice anymore, but they showed us this video. It's a three hour documentary. It's actually on YouTube. You can find it. It's called hell's bells. Okay. 
And it's about the dangers of rock and roll. So this is like 89, I want to say. This is pretty like the height of the satanic panic, you know. And I mean, where you had a bunch of crazy shit going on. I know more about it now. I didn't know at the time. But I mean, you had it was a total witch hunt on like I mean, you had school librarians going to jail for for talking about uh, nature. You know, I mean, like so uh, or spiritualism, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so Basically, um, this this movie broke. It, it opened my eyes to so many things that I never knew about. They were like backmasking stairway on vinyl. They were like, "Here's a song called Fade to Black that's about suicide. Stay away from these guys. They're playing ACDC Hell's Bells. Um, so many things. Cindy Lauper, she bought. This is about masturbation, you know. And I'm just like, so I'm I'm in class for three hours just making a list of things I need to buy, you know? Yeah. And the rest of the, the rest of the class. That's like a dear Santa. Yeah, exactly. The rest <laughs> the forbidden fruit. They, they were so affected by this and bought into it. And so the day after we watched this movie, the teachers had organized like a, a CD and tape smashing party. Yeah. Right. So it's almost like an old, it's almost like an old book burning. Right. So me and two other guys, Mike Mall and Doug Clark, we went the other way. And we made a bong that day. Our friend, we didn't know how or what to do with it. We had no weed, but we we started a band. And we're like, this is what we need to do. Like, this is it. This is our answer. This is this is our way out of here, you know? And so it was just me and two other people out of 30. And we like you we found our tribe at that point, yeah. you know. So do yeah. you feel like some of your lyrics uh pretty much had to be of a rebellious stench that may or may not have been about the oppressors, the people organizing the tape smashing party. I think so. We were, I was so young that I didn't know how to really write a song. So like we, we played at our school had a talent show and we went and played one song. We, um, we were formed a band called it black opal, which we named it after my dad and Michael Anthony's band that they had and we we covered anarchy in the uk um but we had the school was called saint john's so at the end in saying instead of saying again i'm pissed destroyed destroy i said saint john's will be destroyed and like people were like (laughs) you know but (laughs) other kids other kids in the class that didn't have enough balls to kind of be an individuals or they were too afraid to at that point. And I understand um, they loved it. You know, they loved it. And like, this was a time where, you know, there's kids, there was like three guys in the class that we grew up with that we knew. I mean, we knew they were gay. We knew they were gay, but we were in a system where we were constantly being taught how wrong that was. And they, they, we had teachers that would make fun of it. They would say like, like jokes that they thought were funny. Like it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, and Mm. like things like this. And it, it it never dawned on me then, but these kids were having to like kind of laugh at this. And now that, you know, I don't know what that did to them. That's painful. That's painful. That's, I still know a couple of them and I've never talked about it with them, but, um, it's nice to see that we, the society has progressed enough so that, you know, they, they can be kind of who they are now, but I'm just grateful that I got out of that 
unscathed because we were all being targeted in some way That's about right. whatever we were into, you know? And I remember the teachers that were saying this, one guy specifically, like everybody, everybody fucking loved him. And he was like, really like the cool guy and in touch with the youth. And, you know, come to find out a lot of the girls that I'm still friends with, they tell me now about all the times he would, you know, touch their ass and shit like that. Oh, you know, it's no. like, it's such a i mean there's a whole nother topic but right. what i'm saying there was in times of of unblind oppression there's always some good nuggets there man if you dig deep enough you'll find that if you're willing to go against the status quo and you just search into the unknown into the other side of things it's not as dark as people tell you it is you know there's a lot there's a lot of brightness in there and you you will find your people you know so it's all it's all it's all a blessing you know yeah it's the old uh fear of the unknown cliche that people say you're you're afraid of what you don't understand absolutely and then you get a little bit educated like you're saying and it's like oh okay it's not so bad or i i can deal with this or whatever well yeah. the the shit the shit that's happening in front of your eyes that you may or may not be able to put together in your young mind when it when you realize that shit later on and you feel for those uh, and i'm sure they felt for you being made made fun of for your long hair if you had long hair or, or if you shaved your head or if you wore a dirty kiss t-shirt to school every day or you know just that's a whole i mean that's what I write songs about. That's why I throw that I, I threw that out immediate because I feel like, you know, that's what the really what the first few Metallica records, the lyrics are all about just coping mechanisms and fighting back and, and realizations of like, you know, you why are you trying to teach me this when I know that it's fucked up? So uh, I think music is a great a way of expression and I'm not telling anybody in this room right now that and um I feel like it, it you you have all of this as gasoline in your giant truck that you are driving across the universe and I just want to if I forget anything tell me cuz I know I'm going to you're now managing bands you write you write songs you probably produce records you have a record label, you have a podcast, you uh, book tours for people, you have guested uh, countless, you know, you're in you're in one of your favorite bands now. You're in fucking Sirat Ungle, who's from your home. Are, are you from Ventura? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And they're they're from Ventura. I want to I want to touch on that uh, in a second. Um, the, uh, the, the fact that all of these things you are actively doing, um, makes me need a fucking nap <laughs> and it, it's, it's so impressive. And it obviously means that, uh, it has to be a full-time thing. I don't know when you clock in at your gig at Starbucks. And I don't, I mean, how are you, okay, let, let me just pull one out of your hat, of your many hats. You've got a hat collection 
right? Yeah. I just went down a bunch of your your hats. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know that one. I'm familiar with most of your hats. So, uh, you know, I just feel like you're one of these guys, and we all are, that have booked a 150 date tour, and you come home with nothing, and your credit cards are maxed out. And four flat tires, and you know, I got no air in the tire, but I'm a metalhead, you know. Yeah. And you're singing the blues every, you're in the fucking red every time you come home. Explain why you keep beating yourself in the head. I mean, I know why, we know why, but how does that, how do you make that balance out with either the extreme passion and love and gigantic heart that you have for it, which I feel like is. I'm answering the question for you on top of financially being stable in order to, you pay know, <laughs> buy, buy, pay the rent and, and buy, and buy yep. pr printing cartridges to, to print out <laughs> contracts for deals that you're doing for the guys in Satan, you know, and mm -hmm. shit like that. I'm just wondering, give us a day in a life and how you got here. Right. So, well, back to what you first said, you know, that music is a way of people expressing your, themselves. I fully believe like, you know, people always want to know the meaning of life. Like, I think I've discovered it universally. The meaning of life is self-expression. And that goes for any, any trade or any, or just anything that anybody wants to do. We're here to be productive and when people aren't expressing themselves as individuals to what they truly feel, that's when they hate their life, you know, and 78%, I've got this statistic of people in America hate what they do, you know? So, um, but again, uh, fear of the unknown, right? That's what keeps people from going there. I had it a long time. I still have it. I, every day I wake up, you know, um, my, my thing is this, if I'm not waking up at least, three nights a week at 3 a.m. going, oh, shit, like, what am I doing? Then I'm not living. Yeah. You okay. know, so, so um, you have to, you have to go where, you know, not to quote Star Trek or anything, but you, you have to boldly go where no man has gone before, you know, there's still new, new ways of doing things. So what keeps me going is I just, I try things that people haven't done. And it keeps me excited because, you, you know, you just you just it's a wild card about how things are going to work. Um, I, I'm way into like productivity hacks. I read a ton of books and I they're mostly kind of like self-help books. So I found different systems that work. And the I think the best thing is, you know, they call like they, everybody talks about work life balance. Mm -hmm. I have a work work balance. So my job is my life. I, I, you know, I, I love music and so, and I love business. So I tie those two together and that's what I do. I don't do it for any other industry at all, you know? So like, are there hard financial times? Sure. But I make a pretty good living, you know, and it's, but it's, but I'm working all the time, the clock in and clock out. It's just, it's a 24 seven job. I mean, right now I have two bands on tour. I have a band putting an album out. I'm playing two gigs next weekend, back to back. One's being filmed for a live concert movie, you know, I mean, so 
you just have to compartmentalize and focus on what you're doing when you're doing it and be completely present in that. It's tough, but that's what I, at least I keep trying to do that mentally. And the other thing is this, and I recommend this for everybody, just do a little bit every day, schedule time and do it and then have a cutoff time because I work, I work every band that I manage and bands that, you know, I put out on my label or bands I play in, I give a certain amount of time each day to every entity. And so it keeps me on top of everything because what happens is if I say, okay, I need to, um, I don't know, I need to approve a layout for the next midnight album. Right. And it's due on Friday, but I've got all these things going on. It's Monday. I'm going to do that Thursday night so I can get it in on time. Here's what happens on Thursday. Your car breaks down. Yeah. Uh, your, 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 your landlord calls and says, hey, man, there's a busted pipe in the building. We got to come in. And then you look, okay, cool. And then you're like, then you go to Starbucks and do it. And you're looking at the layout and something's wrong. And you send it back to the artist and they're like, hey, I'm out today or I'm on vacation or they just don't reply. So it's 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 best to just if you can keep consistency you're always on top of it and you kind of always know what's going on the other thing is i have a full-time paid assistant so wow. and that and that person is not like hey go pick up my dry cleaning or you know hey what color tie am i going to wear today that person is like hey here's the schedule this is what we're selling today this is what the email blast is today. These are the social media posts that happened today. Uh, and they're done in advance. You know, here's, um, you know, all the merch that needs to be shipped out. Here are the bills that need to be paid. Um, I want you to work on some art for something that's going to happen next month. Let's start throwing around some ideas, you know, so you always kind of have to work in advance. So one of the other mottos I have, especially because I tour and I do 150 shows a year, that's not counting travel days. Um, that's just me performing. Um, I I have a motto that every day I wake up and I look at my quote unquote to do list and I I'm never going to get anything done. So you have to prioritize. And I say, if I was gone right now for four weeks and could only do one thing, what would it be? And then I do that. I do that first, you know, and then it's it really relieves the stress because there's never enough time to do everything, but there's always time to do the important things. So that's the, that seems like a long answer, but I could talk about it, it in detail for about five hours. So that's, I'll, you I, know, that's, I, just I, I like it. I, I feel okay. like you have your, you're on top of it. You have to be because yeah. here's the thing I, and I, this goes just with my choice of who I surround myself with. I cannot there's so much irresponsibility in this world and there's so much blame placing and shaming. I can't be around people like that. I have to be around people that take responsibility for not only their actions, but just, I mean, I take responsibility for everything and it helps. If somebody cuts me off on the freeway, I'm like, well, it's my fault. I shouldn't have been going that fast. Maybe they're having a bad day. I've been there and I let it go and it doesn't affect me, but being responsible uh, Stan Lee said, you know, about what's the Spider-Man line, like with with great power, with great responsibility comes great power with great with great power comes great responsibility. But I, you can reverse that with great responsibility comes great power. And when you can actually be in charge of things and in charge of other 
people's career. I mean, the bands that I manage, they're they're not they're not poor. This is their this is their life's work and their legacy. This there are a lot of financial things involved, whether it's paying somebody's health insurance or their rent. It's not just booking a gig. And being responsible gives me a lot of power and I have to be able to uh, honor that and control that in a way. So it's, it's, it's prideful to be responsible for somebody. It's like, if you're responsible for your children, there's no excuse, you know, you, you, you're going to do whatever it takes, you know? So to, to get, to put yourself, I've basically, look, I put myself in the hunger mindset. When night demon first started touring, we were homeless for four years in our thirties. And that was tough. You know, that was tough because we, we had told ourselves, look, a lot of people are going to, we're going to get a lot of pushback on this. We, we lost, we lost uh, relationships because of it with, with our significant others, our family were like questioning, like, Hey man, what is going on? You know, your sister's got a PhD and you are living in a van and it's like, okay, but like, this is who I am. And at it, you know, every little, every day was a little baby step to where one day, you know, you're so busy doing the, your life, you lift your head up and go, Hey, like I've, I've kind of, I've built something here for myself, you know, and I have a, my fallback plan is my, is the relationships that I've created. You know, I'm, I'm known, I'm known in the industry as a likable, reliable person, you know, who people can count on, you know, and, and that's, you can't get that on, on paper. You have to get that at the face-to-face relationships. You know? yeah, yeah. That's wealth. That's also wealth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and look, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. So like you can have all of these, you know, material things are good, but it does nothing. Nobody remembers you for the things you have. <laughs> You know, they remember you for your contributions, you know, that's right. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I was going to ask about uh, the business aspect of your life because it seems to be equally as uh, time consuming um, as your music. And I I love that explanation you just gave Uh, just real quick for people that are listening. what, What bands do you manage? I manage Night Demon, my own band, uh, Sarah Thungle, who I also I'm the de facto bass player for um, Satan, yeah, Midnight, and Visigoth. Okay, uh, yeah, and, I, and, yeah. I just want a handful. I mean, to me, those are my like they they each are legends in their own right, and um, it's a cool little gang. Yeah, that, and I wanted to hear those names because I know our listeners will recognize them. You're not just managing the local bar band; uh, these are these are bands that are on major tours, and so it is a lot to handle. Uh, managing one band and being in a band would be more than I could handle. So, uh, hats off to you for for managing five bands and then you know pursuing your own. So the youngest, uh, the youngest group that you manage, I'm going to just riff here, might yeah. be Midnight. No, no, actually. Well, see, they wear masks, so you'll never know how old they really are. Yeah, but yeah. Surprise <laughs> you. No, Visigoth is the youngest band I managed. Oh, oh, okay. But they're the first band I ever managed. So I've managed them for, I think, eight or nine years. Um, and look, I never wanted to be a band manager. It was never my my passion at all. I'm an artist, you know. But I just was friends with people, and I came across – 
it, this all happened naturally with everybody that I manage. It was just like, okay, these guys are at a crossroads and they really need help. And they're about to make some crucial, like career possible career crushing moves, you know? And so like, what can we do to help, you know? And it kind of just evolved into that. And, you know, I don't have any contracts with my bands. They're all handshake deals. I don't want to lock anybody into anything. I've never been fired ever. Like I, 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 I just, when we're done, we're done. I mean, here's the thing. I, I think I'm the best band manager type because I'm the guy actually out there doing it. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that manage bands that, um, never leave the office. Hold on a sec. Uh, Rob from Sirathungal just walked in the room. Say hi to these hey. guys. Hey, how's hey, it going, Rob? Uh, good, good to see man. you, man. How are you? Sirathungal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cameo appearance. Nice. On a podcast. Anyway, but like the thing is, there's a lot of and and you know, bless them. We need we need business people in this business, you know. But a, a majority of them, they got into the music business because they love music, but. They're like, oh, but I, I never could play an instrument. That's what every guy will or man or woman will tell you in the music industry. I love music, but I could never figure it out. I'm just not musically inclined. Yeah. Well, basically, I mean, nobody, I'm not. I just worked really hard at it, you know? So it's like, uh, I'm the guy out there doing it. So I can book a tour or deal or work with an agent and just go, that ain't going to work. Like, mm-hmm. if you for you sitting behind a desk collecting a percentage and just going, well, that's the routing and that's this and that, and that's what's available. And I'm like, well, guess what? I've toured in, in Idaho, (laughs) uh, 20 times. And I know there's, is only one venue in Boise, but there ain't because like I've developed these relationships with people out there where I'm like, you know, I know a guy that has a freaking basement or a community center and he's actually the best promoter you're going to find because he's not a guy doing 30 shows a month at his club. He loves this band and cares about it. And he's going to work harder than anybody is on this whole tour. And this is going to be a huge success, you know? So it's something to be said for the guy that's actually out there doing it. Like if you're managing a business, if you manage a McDonald's, it's probably best that you know how to mop the floor too. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It's, only is, it's that I, experience. It's the real world experience. You, right. you, you can't teach that from a cubicle. You gotta be, you gotta play the dumpy dive in Boise, Idaho, and then you gotta sleep on someone's couch and realize that there's a, a, a cool underground club. That's not on anyone's radar. That's actually the place you need to play the next time you're in town. Absolutely. And, and you don't get that if you're not in the van. Plus, it's like, you know, a lot of agents, they have relationships with with promoters because they they send them a lot of shows and they usually have leverage because they have a bigger act that that promoter is really going to want. So they'll take a smaller band or whatever. That's that's just business favors that doesn't really do anything more for the band besides get them a performance. It's not like their heart is into it. Right. And um, for me, it's like. I can, the promoters that I call, like I've, I've gotten fucked up with these guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I've, I've spent some quality time with these people in the trenches. So it's a totally different, you know, I could call this, these guys at midnight and they'll answer the phone, you know? So 
it's a real blessing to be able to to help other artists with the relationships that I've created. And I wouldn't never I would never bring anybody something. I, I would never ask anybody for a favor if it's not going to mutually benefit both parties, because then you use that up and then you're done. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. You know, you got to do the right thing. At the end of the day. It sounds very um well, I, I don't want to use the word old school, but it's a very, it's an, oh, that's an old art. That's a tribal, that's smoke signals via, yeah. in our world, it would have been, um, you know, er, uh, early 80s, um, the tape trading, the, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, obviously pre-internet. And where I'm going with this is the fanzines and the tape trading lists that had phone numbers and addresses to people that you could call at midnight and they would answer the phone and help you find a gig and help you find a crash pad and help you. And the metalheads stole that from the punk rocks, punk rock dudes. And it was, it just kind of like melded into this whole thing. And it was a communication. It was like the Pony Express. And I feel like, uh, you know, Everybody, everybody has uh, in a metal band has stolen that idea or or fallen through uh, with that idea when they hit the road, you know. And uh, it's all at that point, it's just word of mouth and uh, communication. But you can't do it unless you're at least you know making before cell phones. You know, it was a hundred dollars to call anybody to work out. To work out yeah. some kind of a deal, you know, to make to route anything, uh, to to even jot it down in a little notebook, so you know, here's what we talked about, and here's much money, still cool with that, you know, kind of a just when you settle up, doing Absolutely. doing yeah. business back then. It sounds to me like, and things are of course different because of the tools made ready for you to use, but the everything is still exactly the fucking same especially since your your percent of what you're taking for managing a band is probably not what a normal rock band's manager is taking nope. and you're yeah nope. you're you're not looking transparent just cuz i think people should know sure i mean i'm not going to give you my tax return right now but i'm just saying like no. uh, you know i take 10 to 15% of the profit. So that's after all bills are paid, like everything. That's what I, that's what I take because, and again, I have a staff that I pay. Uh, there's, there's like administration fees that, I mean, I'm hosting all the web stores, websites, all that. Yeah. But the thing is it, it, in order to make a living, what it does is it pushes me to, to, to make that much more money for my bands Cause I'm like, well, here's what I need to make. So that means you guys are going to make this much. Most managers will take anywhere from 15 to 20, sometimes 25%. Some of these bigger management companies of the gross. So that's Mm -hmm. before the van rentals paid the bus rental, the merchandise. I mean, all this shit costs money, you know? And so being completely transparent, that is my system. And with my label, I do only 50, 50 deals. So it's like, look, I'll advance all the money to get this record made and release it. And I have the same distribution as all the majors. So and and look, again, I have relationships. The head guy at the at the distributor, I have a key to his house. Okay, he's the head metal guy. Yeah. You know, it's like they, 
Sony doesn't have that. You know what I mean? So I, but I, I like doing 50, 50 deals. That's the old Greg Ginn black flag SST model. It's like, look, all front, all the costs will get this record made. I get paid back first when that's recouped. Like we just split the profits. You do your job. I do my job. There's never a dispute about money. It's not like any of this, or I give some band a big advance and they think this is great. And that money is gone within a week and they never see a penny. You know, you, it's the old, we grew up in the punk rock scene. The only other heavy metal band out of Ventura ever was Sirithungal, you know, and I have, my lifetime has been half, half, old school and half internet, you know? So I do remember those days. Even when I started touring, I started touring when I was 17, I'm 42 now. Um, We were, there was internet, but I mean, we were still using, you know, Atlas roadmaps. We would drive two hours in the wrong direction sometimes. Uh, You know, there was, you know, so I do remember that. My cell phone bill at the time, I was one of the first guys to have a cell phone in my group of friends. And my cell phone bill was, I think, $3,000 in August of 1998, you know? it, so uh, we used to have the phone cards. I know all that, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, transparency is what I'm all about. You know, it's like you you gotta. That's it. Those are my deals, and I think that's what's fair. You know, because again, I'm a guy in a band. Think about you know, bands that have five members. They have to split something. Five, you know, and the agents are taking their ten or fifteen too. So sometimes, you know, you're getting. 60% of your gross on a tour and then your expenses come in, then you split that five ways. That's why bands don't make it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow, man. That that's all just, I love the perspective. We, you know, we all, obviously we have musicians on this podcast all the time and we talk about the art and the music, uh, but this insight into the business aspect of it is, is really interesting. Uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that with us because I did want to pick your brain because you're obviously very good at that and trusted and you do have a good reputation. Uh, so I, I was curious how you make that work. And that's a really impressive balancing act you got going there. Don't be greedy because you know, like if you got, if you've got a good, you know, I hate to say this, like, cause an artist would hate to say this, but I'm also an artist. If you have a good product, you know, that's what they call it in the industry. Yeah. That's it. Just get it out there, man. It'll, it'll do what it does. You know, <laughs> like you, you can't, but if you, if you're cutting off the, that's creating the product you're not going to get any more yeah you know what i mean yeah so uh, i mean look i'm in life and like like i said i mean the bands i like i they're with me like we we i it's not meant to end you know i mean everything does end um and if it does it's fine but like look i know bands (laughs) i know bands that have fired managers and gotten new management that have contracts with these managers. So now they're paying 40 to 50% of their gross earnings to two different management companies, their former management company that does nothing and their new one because they're locked into a deal. And the management company's like, look, we had you for seven years and in year three, you fired us. Uh, that We're not gonna stop collecting money on you. Like, you know, then I think that's fucking bullshit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, let's shift gears for a minute. Uh, that, that's all interesting stuff. I really enjoyed that. Uh, but, but I do want to talk about your music. Uh, talk about Night Demon, the, the latest album, I believe, is Outsider. Yeah. Um, a, tell us about ahead. it. 
Yeah, it's actually a it's a concept record, <laughs> which uh, was a you know nobody wants to hear. Uh, but uh, it was uh, I I wrote a film script. Um, that's like my side my side hustle there. So I'm really like film film is my is my big passion outside of music, and um, I've written a few scripts before. And, um, I mean, nothing ever got made. I just kind of do it as an exercise to get these ideas out of my head and it kind of helps with songwriting, but I've, I've really been a student of actually a screenplay writing and it's a totally different art form and there are formulas to it and stuff like that. But, um, I wrote a film script and during the, during the pandemic, which was a blessing for us because night demon had done Prior to 2020, Night Demon had done, I think we had done 600 shows in that four-year span. And so I, for us to have a forced break was, it was great, man. We felt like we were kids on summer vacation again. We were getting together every day and, and writing. We had time to write. So I said, hey, you know, I got this script that I worked on for a couple of years. And like, let's, let's see what we could do to like adapt music to this, like take a different approach instead of just, Hey, I have a riff and like, Oh, that sounds like this. Let's write it about the devil. You know, it's like, let's see what we can do here. So we wrote the the album to the, to the script. And um, what we, what we did, I mean, Night Demon has short songs. We're not like, uh, I think a lot of metal bands, the songs are too long. I mean, I just always thought that. I came from the school of punk rock where it's like, just get in and get out and you can play more songs live, you know? Yeah. So it's a concept record that's under 35 minutes. <laughs> but yeah, so it, what, what, it's great because when it, come, when it came out, people kept wanting to listen to it again instead of like, you know, here's this double album, like what, you know, like turn your phone off, lock the doors, you know, make sure your kids are tucked in, right? Like, so... Um, but look, I mean, it, every album that we've done has started out as a concept album and fallen off the tracks. It's just such a difficult thing to do um, and have it make sense, you know. And most what we did, too, is we wrote a synopsis of the story inside of the album artwork. And then on the on the flip side, we have the lyrics and the lyrics were written much more metaphorically. So the songs could stand on their own, because as as Jason will tell you, like lyric writing in a literal sense, it's just bad songwriting, you know? Oh, then he, then the guy did this, then he did that. You know, you have to, you have to have the listener um, be able to interpret it in things in their own way. But we did tell the story in the album because I always felt that there's so many concept albums that have been released where like, you don't really know the story and the band doesn't really tell you. And to me, that means it's just bad writing because if it was good, they'd tell you what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's the deal. And actually, we have just, I'm not going to say too much about this right now, but we have just, um, the script has just been picked up by uh, a producer and a director that I really admire and uh, will be going into production next year. So it's going to be a feature. Congrats. That's awesome. That is awesome. You mentioned... uh, a couple times during our conversation, the influence of punk rock. And I, I, when oh, I was yeah. doing my homework on, on you, um, I, there's a rancid connection. Lars yeah. and Matt are recorded backup vocals on one of your tracks or something. How did, how do you know the rancid guys and how did that come about? You know, those guys are, 
I mean, they're pretty out in the open now, but for years have been, I guess, closet metalheads. And, you know, they're, they're Bay Area dudes. So um, we played up in the Bay Area with Death Angel and uh, Brian Liu. Yes. And Chuck Billy mm-hmm. were there and they're like, hey, Lars from Rancid's here and he wants to meet you. Yeah. And uh, he was there with his kids. And uh, I mean, just a super nice guy. And we just we just hit it off. We just started talking about a lot of stuff. I mean, like, you know, we so we could talk about punk stuff. And we're probably the only one of the, one of the few people that had a show like that that can, you know, and um, we just kept a connection and became friends. And I was and then I met. And then he's like, hey, Matt Freeman has this other band, Charger. They're kind of like a Motorhead thing. And so Matt just sent me a, whole, a box of records. And and uh, so I was just like, hey, we had a more kind of punk kind of track with some gang vocals. And I go, it'd be great to get you guys on it. So I flew up to San Francisco and we did it in the studio that they record all their albums at. And it was just a fun, easy thing and kind of keeps that bridge for us uh, with punk. And like I've... You know, I'm also uh, a lot of my history is I was a concert promoter and I, I, you know, back when I was like from the age like 17 to 20, I was doing a lot of it kind of smaller punk shows that turned into big stuff. Like I was doing a uh, Slayer. I did. Um, I actually spent a good chunk of my college fund that my grandparents set aside for me to help with uh, the UFO reunion when wow. Shanker came um for the west coast shows um i was the first guy to bring dark funeral to the west coast i was a part of that um a lot of things when i was young i i was i mean it just goes to show i mean i've I've been on all ends of this business and um really kind of dedicated myself to it um sorry i'm getting sidetracked here but um i put on a punk fest uh an annual fest out here called the nard fest that um it's in honor of Nardcore, which was our scene, Oxnard Hardcore. There's a lot of bands like Dr. No, Ill Repute, Stalag 13, Aggression. Like the skate punk thing was kind of born out here. And I was the kid that was in a metal band and the only metal band in town. And so we would we could only play punk shows because there were only punk bands. And a lot of those guys really respected us for our musicianship because they the, that was a time when you know, in, in the late 80s, there was no before the crossover thing really happened. Like, man, if you were a long hair at a punk gig in California, you'd get beat up, you yeah. know. So when I, I came in the next generation and it was accepted and put the punks were really getting into Slayer and DRI and um, a good sort and- of like frame and time. I'm, I apologize for interrupting, Sorry. but but the the a good sort of like a beacon is when Mike Muir had really long hair. You remember that time? It's about well, 86, yeah. 87, 88. I think of- like, and, and when they did like, you know, how will I laugh tomorrow? Like a yeah. ballad, you know? Yeah. And yeah, really, I mean, they were, they were the more, I think you're right. They were probably the most out front commercial uh, band to cross those boundaries. Unafraid, you know? unafraid. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But then you saw a lot of bands doing it, like Corrosion, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah, you had your DRIs, Excel, uh, Doctor No, who comes from our town, you know, which Slayer covered Mister Freeze on the on their Punk tribute album, you know. So. I just want to say there sure is a lot of metalheads that need to be writing all this shit down because all of those bands <laughs> we just made a shopping list of metalheads <laughs> yeah. need to hear that shit. Yeah. 
Because that's yeah. all the shit that like Jeff Hanneman and they were all oh, into that. They yeah. were all into that. So. Oh yeah. yeah. I love that. Um, I, I do remember Jason and I are old enough to remember the days when, when metalheads and punks did not mix. Yeah. And it's, uh, silly. it's silly because it's like, you know, who, who doesn't love the Ramones or fear or like misfits, you know, yeah. or verbal abuse attitude adjustment. There's so many like, great bands like mdc yeah oh yeah mdc is super yeah yeah of course man i love it all um tell us about your involvement with sirith ungle there was just something in the news recently where you guys made an announcement that 2024 is going to be your last year of touring or existence or what's the story and i think you have an album coming out or right Bring so, us up to date um, on Sirith Ungle. Right. So the band had been, the band had quit in 92 and, um, or 91, I think. Well, they, they, they weren't a band for 25 years. The guys basically sold their equipment and said, fuck the rock and roll industry. They'd been a band since they started in 71. Yeah. And basically <laughs> that whole time, you know, lived through the seventies and eighties and like, we're putting out records, but never got to tour. Like, you know, just disenfranchised with, being from Southern California, playing the Sunset Strip game, but not ever going glam. And, you know, yeah. um, but look, it's just a thing that nobody does. Again, this is a totally long story that I'm going to try and make short, but they they were just disenfranchised with everything. And it's a band that everybody wanted to see. There was a whole new generation of fans when the Internet was out, you know, and uh, it took me a lot of convincing um, but basically the band reunited in 2016 and yes, we have a new record coming out next week. We're doing a live album and concert film at the Roxy. It's there. They, they haven't played the Roxy since 1983. Um, there's a famous bootleg from that show that we're basically recreating, but yeah, here's that. Oh, cool. Wow. So this, this is a video podcast. I'm at here at our headquarters right now. I might even have, I might even have that flyer. Yeah, at HQ. So I'll bring you into this is the Sarah Thungle rehearsal room here. Yeah. Wow. There's Tim uh, Baker right there, the voice. Yeah. Hey Tim. <laughs> Legend. Legend. Yes. There you go. So wow. um yeah. But um yeah, and here's the uh the wall of fame here. And basically, I mean, look, if you kind of look at it, I mean, like here's some old newspaper articles, like these guys just getting so this article, this newspaper is from September 23rd, 1978. And it says, heavy metal band is still only 10. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically talking about how, how they're not getting any traction and nobody's picking up mm -hmm. on what they're doing. And there's no scene here, you know? And this one here, look at this one from, uh, where are we at here? This is from the early 90s. And it says, Legions of European metal fans cheer the sonic assault of Sirithungle, but where's the hometown crowd? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We Ungle, go ahead. Sirithungle doesn't have to pose to be rock stars. They're the real thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, so but then look, we reunite, they get a proclamation and the key to the city here, you oh know, like <laughs> things happen, you know. So you just gotta you gotta my, my people ask me a lot of times, like, what's the secret to 
uh, longevity? And my answer is longevity is the secret. Just stick around long enough. I mean, look at Watchtower's playing again. You guys playing in Europe? Like, come on. Never you know break. I, I've always said never yeah. break up the band. Even if yeah. you're sitting on your ass for 20 years, never break up the band. The phone's going to ring, you know, sometime, right. somewhere. We recently had, I have to get this in, we recently had Brian Slagle on the show. Sure. Good buddy. And he, he goes off, oh, I'm sure. And he goes off on Sarah Thungle and he talks about exactly what you've been talking about, how he, go, he, he goes to some festivals over in Europe and there's kids running around Sarah Thungle swag on everywhere. And he's like, wait a minute, something's going on here because he knows that back in the day, Ventura doesn't really have a scene. And, no. and you know, we're talking about when uh, Brian worked at Oz, the yeah. little, little record store. And yep. he talked about how Ventura was a sleepy little like surf town or something where he went at Christmas and Thanksgiving to... Visit his grandma or some shit, and he's like, "There's a fucking metal band from Ventura. That's Grammy's house, you know, or whatever." And I just thought it was fucking awesome how the way you talk about it and where you guys are and where you're from. This kind of like this tree has roots and it it's growing fruit. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's talk about the DIY thing in 1981, Sarah Thungle, that Frost and Fire album, they released that on their own because they couldn't get any attention from labels. They were way ahead of their time on that. Metal bands were not putting out their own records. And it wasn't a seven inch, it was a freaking beautiful 12 inch that had Michael Whalen cover art, you know, and it's become iconic. Yes. But like when I was growing up, you would find that in the dollar bin at thrift stores around here. Now, those pressings go for a thousand dollars on eBay, you know, yeah. Yeah. again, you just, you stay in the game, but the, the short answer of the retirement is, you know, um, it's been a good road when, when the band reunited, we thought maybe there'd be one performance. It's been eight years. It's been two new studio albums. It's been a live of two, it's going to be two live albums. Now, uh, another single and 35 plus shows all over the world. Um, but we're gearing up for a big year. We're going to do 30 shows probably next year worldwide, Australia, Japan, Europe, South America, all over the States, Canada. And I mean, look, you know, I mean, the, nobody's getting any younger and they're, the band's playing at a high level. And <clears throat> I, it's good to go out on top. And when you're 68 years old, sometimes I mean, I think it's a bittersweet thing. I mean, these guys are in the other room here, but I'm just saying like, you know, I think they're a bit sad about it, but also it's kind of like, you know, we've all been to the, we've all been to the farewell tours and just gone again and again. And it's, it's all a money thing. And this isn't about a money thing. This is about, this is about like, let's go out on top and let's, you know, I was in, I was in Germany when Mark the Shark from Manila Road died. I was there with him like that day. Wow. And he was a dear friend of ours. And like we, I mean, anybody could die at any point, right? But the fact that that, it, it seems that in death is when all of our notoriety comes, mm -hmm. you know? So it is nice to have to give the fans a chance to say, look here, this is the last time you get to you get to celebrate with us one last time. 
And, you know, it means the shows are more meaningful to us and that, to the audience. And we're going to, we're giving everybody a chance for this, you know, and all the promoters are coming to the table, which is great, you know, and you don't want to see something flipping. I hate to say that the, the, the magic or the, I will, I will say not the magic, but the sheen, I think was tapering a little bit too. You know, because it's like when they first got back together, of course, it's like, holy fuck, you know? Yeah. It's still a big deal, but I don't know. There's been a lot of deliberation about this for the last few years, to be honest, you know, and just talking like where, you know, where, where are we going with this and how do we, everything does end. How do we want it to end? We don't want it to end how it ended in 1991, you know, where the band just played a terrible show. Nobody cared. And just dissolved and fucked the music industry. It's for clowns. I wasted 20 years of my life doing this. I'm going to go get a real job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, give us the album title so people know what to look for. Uh, when oh, this- Dark Parade. Dark Parade. Okay. Yeah. Spirit Dungle, Dark Parade. And when does that come out? October 20th. Oh, so okay. Or then. So if it, if it doesn't. Yeah. So. Yeah. So by the time people are listening and watching this podcast, it'll be available so you can look for it. Dark Parade, Sirith Uncle. That's really cool. Um, I was the, the reason I asked about the 2024 retirement is because there does seem to be a second wave of interest. And if you guys put out this album and then you do the tour and you gain some traction, do you, do you decide maybe to continue or are you confident in saying, look, we're going to, when this runs its course, it's, it's over. You know, what's fucking funny, Rob, who you just saw Rob Garvin from Sarah Thungle ran into Nikki six the other day and they were talking about the old days and shit. And <laughs> yeah, he mentioned to me too. It's like, so we're we going to pull a Motley. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it's just, uh, it has been brought up. What if we get a huge offer to come out of retirement? I guess we cross that bridge when it comes. I'd like to say, no, that's not going to happen. And like, look, I mean, we still have an infrastructure. I mean, I'm still going to c- take care of the legacy of the the band and the assets and we don't want to have what happened uh, 30 years ago where you just quit as a band and then the bootleg market takes over. I mean, we own catalog. We have a merchandising business that's big and I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. I mean, basically do what Slayer's doing now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, uh, I don't know. All these things are up for, for discussion, but as far as I'm concerned, like I'm going to try my hardest to make sure that that, that uh some kind of comeback like that doesn't happen again especially because there's a lot of momentum right now and if you step away from it man and you come back you know when everybody's really older and has and you know but the band i think i think the band's going to continue playing and probably writing music and you know it's like they really enjoy doing doing this again you know so um i don't know we'll see but if if I put my money on it right now, 2024 is the end of 2024 is the goodbye. Where is the tour routed? Where where will people be able to see you in 2024? Oh, we, we, we are waiting until the end of the month to start announcing this stuff. We have a whole schedule with promoters um, about how we're going to roll this out because there's a certain way that you have to do it in order to um, 
avoid conflicts as far as um, certain pre-sales and stuff like that. And there's a pecking order of who gets what, because there's going to be like final shows announced in certain countries. And there's going to be like some one-offs that are going to be announced later that piggyback on a festival that basically needs to sell some tickets up front. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So, uh, back to Night Demon. I saw you have a you recorded a single, I believe, and there's a video on your website. Your website, by the way, is is excellent. Uh, people that are interested should go check out the Night Demon website. Uh, I can tell you're you're very professional about it. You keep it updated. It looks great. Uh, the media all over it is is really cool. Uh, but I'm talking specifically about a video you did with Uli John Roth. Yeah, when, uh, he came up and did in trance with you guys at a gig in Germany. And first of all, let, let me just say your vocals on that performance are amazing. Thank I mean, you. you did a great, great job. Uh, how did that come about? How did you get Uli up there with you? So um, in trance was a song that we just kind of messed with and, and we covered a couple times. We played some pretty big German fests and thought like, this is good, man. This one's going to really bring it home, you know, because it's like you, you when you get around drunk Germans, like that's the only way to make them cry because they're just, you know, so if you get them drunk enough and then you play an, an old ballad from their from their home. That's how you get them, you know, and then uh, then the T-shirts start saying we're glory. All we are. We're not a band. We're just traveling T-shirt salesmen these days. You know, so you got you to gotta do that. But but um, but no, really. So so we, we just kind of messed with the song before. And so what happened was we ended up playing the Rock Hard Festival and Uli was scheduled. to. He was in the next slot above us. And so I was friends with his agent. And I said, hey, man. Can you get Uli to what, what did you think? Can you get him to come out and play in trance with us? And then Uli's like, fuck no, I'm not gonna fucking go out before my set and play my hit with this fucking these California kids. Like, <laughs> you know. So later that night, we were in the hotel bar, and it was great because it was like Saxon, Night Demon, Armored Saint, and Uli and his band. And we're all drinking. And I'm like, this is incredible just to be here, you know? And uh, I hit him up about it again. And he was telling Biff from Saxon, like, this guy's out of his fucking mind, you know, all this stuff. So I just kept pressing the issue. And about a year and a half went by, and Night Demon was going to headline our, we were going to, it was our first big festival headliner in Europe. And we were headlining a festival and it was sold out. And I said, we got to bring something special to this. So I hit up Uli's agent again. And I said, look, like, here's the deal. Let's make something happen. I'll fucking pay him or whatever. And he's like, no, no, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to like pay him for that. You know? And I said, well, look, let me just like get, give him some money. Like I'll fly him out and just give him a couple bucks or whatever. Like, but we really want to have it happen. And he, his agent really understands. He knows Night Demon and he knows what we're about and what we bring to the table. So he's trying to explain it to Uli. Like, look, this is going to benefit you, man. You know, like you're going to play in front of like an audience that already likes you, but doesn't really go see you, you know? Bingo. So, Right. So, so, um, he kept saying no. And about, I think five days before the show, he, he agreed. So we bought him a plane ticket and 
he came to the show. I mean, this is a long story, but like I, we actually have a podcast. If you listen to the Night Demon Heavy Metal podcast, episode two, there's a shit ton of people on there talking about this event and how it happened. But basically to make it short, he showed up. He didn't want to rehearse. We rented a rehearsal space in Hamburg, but he didn't want to rehearse. And we're like, fuck, like we really need to rehearse. So he ended up showing up like an hour before we went on. We ran through things backstage. Um, no, the audience didn't know it was going to happen. So we did it on the encore. He just kind of glided out there in his ooly way. And he had his guitar. He had fucking dream catchers and feathers hanging from him and shit. And like, it was, it was amazing, but we played that. And then we played top of the bill as well. And somebody had recorded like a bootleg recording of it. Um, and we just took the camera audio and it wasn't bad. And we said, Hey, let's put this out on a seven inch. And, uh, Uli was down for it. And the rest is history. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> that's incredible. Talk that about incredible. talk about dreaming and dreams coming <laughs> true, and yeah. and now you're in uh, now you're in Sirith Ungle, and yeah. you're you're just doing all these great things. Uh, we could talk for another ten hours. You realize this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. Yeah. One thing before I go. Um, yeah. I'll put this to you, to you, Jason. So I, uh, I hung out with uh, Van Stavern last night. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, me and Christian, Christian Larson have been really trying to get an essay Slayer thing happening. Okay. And you're the obvious choice as the vocalist. Yeah. Um, but I, so I'm putting this out to the public right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, to um, as a call to arms to anybody listening to this to please start publicly requesting this and and what we're willing to offer and I'm not I'm speaking for Christian here but what we've talked about is you know for the for Hell's Heroes 2025 you know he's willing to book Sacred Reich Riot Five Dangerous Toys you know and. We're going to get all we'll get all everybody's main projects there. So there's no conflict. There's no emotional conflict. There's no scheduling conflict and everybody will be it'll be in Texas. And we are we're pushing for an official SA Slayer reunion show. The money's there. The people are there. And this is it. This is a call to arms. 2025 spring of 2025. We want to see this happen. I'm already in the parking lot. Wow. <laughs> wow. There's an exclusive. How about but, that? Well, well, let's, let's get some, let's get some fan uh, feedback. Let's get some petitioning here. Um, but, but Donnie's into the idea, you know, I got to convince McLean. Uh, but mm -hmm. again, like, look, you know, we'll put sacred Reich on the bill and like, it'll be, it'll be an incredible vibe and, and feeling, you know? Yeah. Wow. And people, you know. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. Man, uh, Jarvis, it's been so cool getting to know you today. Um, I have to admit, I'm I'm a little late to the night demon party, uh, but I I've been I've been cramming for this interview and I'm loving everything I hear. So I'm late to the party, but you're gonna have a hard time getting rid of me now. And hey, that's uh, yeah, and our our mutual friend Sean Weingartner, uh, who lives here in Austin, uh, of course, uh, has been singing your praises for as long as I can remember. So it, it's time for me to get on board, and I'm glad we had this chance to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. Uh, you guys, as Jason likes to say, are are uh, 
you're you're bringing back metal it's it's the metal that we grew up on traditional heavy metal black leather bullet belts flying v's and uh and i love it so thanks for all you're doing an appearance by the reaper you know (laughs) his name is rocky his name is rocky 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 the reaper yeah i like it rocky the reaper yeah So, yeah, man, thank you so much for joining us today. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave, along with our special guest today, Jarvis Leatherby on the Talk Louder podcast. 